Hey everybody, how's it going? Um, this is your host, Michael Unterberg of the JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we try to keep you in touch with what's going on here in Israel. I'm here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? Uh, okay, Mike, beginning of a new week. Beginning of a new week. It's uh, an odd time to drop a podcast, but we felt that current events warranted an episode. So um, obviously we're not a news podcast, so we'll summarize basically what's going on, but we wanted to just give a little background into it. We thought that events are moving fast enough that we should uh, add some of our thoughts and we'll resume our usual podcast schedule going ahead. Um, So I guess I'll do the summary. And for those of you who have been keeping up with the news, so this will be a little repetitive for you, but we want to give a little bit of a timeline. Um, basically, it all begins Friday a week ago. By the way, I always find that helpful, even when I'm reading the news myself, to just sort of remember the order of it. I sometimes get confused. It becomes a jumble. So laying it out in order, I think, is helpful. Um, so Friday a week ago, there was a terrorist attack on out just at the entrance to the Temple Mount, uh, um, where two, three um, Israeli Arabs from the town of Um al-Fakham, which is in the north, sort of the, the northern area of Israel, um, came out of the Temple Mount after having snuck in weapons, a fourth actually um, perpetrator, uh, snuck in weapons for them. They took their weapons out and came from inside the Temple Mount and attacked the two police guards on duty outside, right in the entrance there, who were Israeli policemen um, from the Druzy villages also up north. They're Druzy. They, it's a, a minority in Israel of Arabic-speaking people. Um, and they have their own religion and their own customs and their own deficiencies of people. Um, they were they were shot. Both of those policemen were shot and killed. A third one was injured. And then the the assailants ran or terrorists ran back into the into the Temple Mount where they were then um, killed by Israeli Israeli police, other Israeli police. So that that's sort of the beginning of all this on Friday. Israel then immediately afterwards shuts down the Temple Mount for forty eight hours. Um, and that causes immediate response um, within the Arab and Muslim world, uh, criticizing Israel for shutting down the Temple Mount, um, and that Israel has no right to, and this is an offense, and this is oppressive, and it begins rioting, um, mostly centered, some of it peaceful protests, but also lots of violent rioting in the Jerusalem area, um, East Jerusalem uh, particularly, which is mostly uh, Arab-Palestinian. Um, that spreads Israel after 48 hours, opens the Temple Mount, but is now, but then puts up metal detectors, which were not in that particular entrance, which was the Lion's Gate, I believe, right? It was Lion's Gate. It was not in that particular entrance, even though other entrances do have metal detectors. And as anybody who's been to Israel, which I assume most of our listeners have been, are a fairly common thing, even in the most benign seeming places in Israel. Um, and so since then, the fight has been over metal detectors. Whether Israel has the um, right from the Palestinians' perspective, Israel does not have the right to um, put metal detectors outside the Temple Mount for security purposes. Israel um, clearly uh, uh, has security. Why why is that also? Sorry, I'll go back for a second. Why is that a a discussion? Because in 1967, when Israel conquered the uh, Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, they um, almost immediately, Moshe Dayan, who was the defense minister, gave um, 
without a cabinet decision, without anything, gave um, the WAQF, which is the Muslim Council under the Jordanian government, the right to um, control religious ritual on the mount. And Israel, of course, retains security control of the whole area, including that. So Israel, and sovereignty. And sovereignty. So Israel, Israel says, okay, we're in charge of security. This is the assessment now. This is the assessment from the police. Throughout the week, there was different discussions. Some, we, some say no. Again, it becomes a diplomatic discussion. But Israel, up until now... Well, the local security people decided that if, if there's going to be this threat on the Temple Mount, they should have... It was a local security decision with, in, in a matter that has obvious broader implications. Right. And uh, but again, the cabinet met and uh, it, it went. To, but the, the basic fight over now the last week has been over these metal detectors um, that Israel has placed there. And the, the WAC, which is, again, this um, Supreme Muslim Council that controls there and, and many other Muslim uh, religious authorities throughout Israel. I'm not sure if throughout the world, but at least throughout Israel, have called for Muslims not to go up to the Temple Mount. Um, instead, they've been coming and protesting outside, and then, of course, mostly in the Jerusalem area, um, Jerusalem neighborhoods, uh, there have been uh, lots of rioting um, continually at night. When you say around the Arab world, the, you're talking about actual protests around the Arab world, not just... So I was just talking about it around Jerusalem, but it's also spread to Arab centers. Uh, I'm in Amman, I think Beirut, I think Cairo. I'm, uh, don't quote me on that without checking your sources, but if I remember correctly. And that has pretty much been going on all week. And at the end of the uh, the week, first they called for a day of rage on Wednesday, last Wednesday. Nothing much happened. But then they recalled for it for Friday, which is, of course, that's the Muslim um, Sabbath, Shabbat. And they called for big protests. And the actual protests around the Temple Mount itself, just on the outside, stayed fairly calm and fairly peaceful. But it was the outerlying neighborhoods that were very um, uh, became violent and riots. And you can see the pictures on TV, what have you. And at the end of the day, three Palestinians end up dying during those riots, some by their own hands, by their own weapons, um, and some uh, by uh, Israel's uh, security forces in enforcing, um, obviously, security. Um, that led to Friday night, uh, um, I, which, of course, many of us who keep Shabbos uh, only heard on Saturday night, mostly Shabbos afterwards, when we turned on our, our phones. But Friday night at, I don't know why they're not saying in Israeli media, Shalom Zohar, which it seems is what it was, with a family in a yeshuv, a settlement in, in the Shomron in Samaria, called uh, Chalamish or Nevei Tzuf, um, was uh, celebrating the birth of their grandchild that morning when a terrorist came in from a nearby Arab village and uh, murdered the... By the way, I, I was thinking that about a lot today. I just want to call him murderer, not a terrorist. I mean, he's a murderer, right? Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more, why I'm thinking that, but... Um, I mean, it's definitely murder. That is no question. I don't think, I don't think it's debatably a terrorist murder. I, I, I've been saying terrorist murder because for some reason, I also, and maybe it's emotional... I've been having trouble leaving out the word murder. Terrorism seems to rationalize. There's almost a rationalization with him because yeah. he's he's become a murderer be- because there is a reason. Because with terrorism, at least certainly when it comes to Palestinians, but not only. But when it comes to he, yes, he's a terrorist. But that's exactly what happened on the Temple Mount. Yes, they're terrorists. But you have to understand why they're terrorists, and therefore you cannot do anything to the Temple Mount, or we're going to go crazy and violent. But uh, anyway, so this uh, murderer, um, Arab murderer, came into the family 
um, with a very big knife, stabbed the, uh, killed the the father, who was the grandfather of the child, 70 years old. His wife was stabbed and is in hospital still today, but she was not killed. And two of their adult children were murdered also. Um, Another about uh, six or seven people who were in the house, one of the other children or the adults um, who was a, a daughter-in-law managed to get the children into a safe room, into a room and lock the door or whatever, protect them. And uh, a neighbor who was in the elite canine unit, Oketz, um, came and was the first on the scene who killed the, who killed the murderer. Oh, sorry, you didn't kill me. You're right. Shot him in the stomach and he's still alive. Um, and that brought us to continual um, protests Violent riots over over Shabbat from the Arab side, and the government meeting. I didn't see. We've been in. We've been uh, working all morning, so I haven't seen the reports of the cabinet was supposed to meet this morning. Um, uh, but uh, there's all this talk. Okay, what do we do? Do we keep the metal detectors? Do we not? Can we in- secure for other ways? By the way, another thing that happened over Shabbat, they set up cameras, mm-hmm. um, which has been in the past a source of friction between Jordan and Israel in terms of security on the Temple Mount. Everything is defined by the Arab side that Israel does for security as a change of status quo. And that is kind of the sort of important thing. The idea is there's a status quo here, which the which I don't really even understand how the Arabs interpret it. So. Well, we'll, get, we'll unpack that. But, uh, but also, okay. if, you, if you're looking, that's the reaction of the Israeli leadership is struggling to decide how to how to continue to implement security measures or not implement security measures, whether we add more back down. And on the Palestinian side, you have uh, uh, Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, who's saying he is breaking off uh, relationship with the Israeli government. Except, and then later there was a statement, except for security things. No, then security, and then he did say lower level, and then he did say higher level security things, but not lower level security things on the ground. This is actually the point to, if we really ask about where this is going, if this is going to be, uh, that, that's always the question in Israeli's mind, is in Hebrew what they call haslama, which is, I think, the, the ab- opposite of how we say it in English, which is an escalation, um, which is things going to get worse, basically, is what we're talking about. Um, uh, well, that's why I don't want to leave out. Palestinian reaction and what their decisions are because everybody in Israel, of course, always debates what should we do. And I think it's important to analyze what Palestinian leadership is doing and what they could be doing. Of course, from Hamas, you have praise both for the protests and also for the murders in uh, Chalamish and that those murderers, and there's, there's plenty going on in the Palestinian media praising uh, those, I mean, just absolutely heartbreaking, horrific murders, as well as the violence of the protests. Right, actually, going back, I heard an interesting interview on the Israeli radio, <laughs> which they interviewed the the father and the mother of the of the murderer. Their murderer, the father, came out against it completely and said he would have stopped it if he, if he had known. And the mother praised it completely and said she brought pride to her and her family. And yeah, it's I, usually the mothers who praise. I don't know what culturally that's about. It's a strange. Maybe mother has to support the child no matter what in the culture i don't know something i'm missing i think um all right so a couple things i want to unpack from that first of all you mentioned that the original three terrorists who started this wave on the temple mount on harabayat and if we if we use interchangeably the terms harabayat and temple mount um, that's what we mean uh 
you mentioned that they're from Uma Faham up north. Why is that worthy of note? Because we're talking about Israeli citizens, Ar- Ar- Arabs or Palestinians, how they define themselves, uh, who are Israeli citizens, meaning um, their families in 1948 stayed, became incorporated into the state of Israel, and in the 1960s their families got citizenship in Israel, and they, they have all benefits of being a, a citizen of Israel. And in general are not involved in terrorism or sometimes politically, there's a range of political approaches of Israeli Arabs, sometimes from the more like like pro-Zionist on the one end to anti-Zionist on the other and then a whole spectrum in the middle, but are rarely involved in this kind of terrorist activity. And by the way, I may open up a Pandora's box here, but um, as citizens of Israel, uh, they their houses are not destroyed, meaning one of the things that's going to happen to this terrorist uh, from last night, Friday night, is that they were looking to destroy the house. That's one of the measures the army and Israel government takes against terrorists from um, the West Bank and, and what have you. These were Israeli citizens in an Israeli town. Their houses will not be destroyed. That's it's super. It shows that there's something weird going on in the whole policy. There's, there's an incoherence to the policy that. It's, uh, uh, so it's not even, it's, I'm just like pointing out that that's uh, part of uh, what you see that they're, they're they have a complete we Israel treats differently citizens of the country um, and it's not even when they end up being terrorists who spark a huge um, huge uh, uh, I don't know um, I mean they're the, they're the real instigators of yeah. this flashpoint yeah. So you would expect them to if I mean if there's a listener who wants to rationally defend that distinction other than legalistic casuistry and, and Talmudic you know pill pull if you want to logically defend why their house should be untouchable but a West Bank Arab's family's houses you know you can or should destroy I would be very curious to hear that logical defense I just I can't summon it um so northern Arabs we, we generally think of as settled in Israelis, and here you have three Arabs who who are breaking that mold that we've grown pretty comfortable with. So that's that in itself I think is is scary. Now I wanna I wanna unpack what you said about any change on the Temple Mount is seen as a, a dangerous change as the, of the status quo by by Ara- the Arab world in general and certainly within the Palestinian world. Why, why is that? <laughs> um, why is that? Um, because they see that, um, first of all, Jerusalem is illegally occupied. Very, very clearly, the Jews have no rights to, to Jerusalem. Um, and that the particular, that, any move is a move that Jews are showing sovereignty or control over an area that they believe Jews should not have a right to control to. Um, and therefore, any move would show that they are encroaching on on proper Arab uh, Arab control. I don't know if I said that well. Maybe you want to... Well, I, I think what you're saying is it's just... It, 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 they, 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 if the, they're not just saying that they think the Jews are Judaizing Jerusalem. They think of it as an Arab city and all encroachments of Israeli influence is a they see as a political loss on their side. Right. Is that what you're saying? I guess so. Yes, and therefore every, anything has to be protested. Anything we, we protest against we protest, and particularly something that surrounds the Temple Mount will rile rile up the masses. In other words, building in 
right? Building in East Jerusalem, right? A Jewish family buying a, buying a home in in uh, in an Arab neighborhood in East Jerusalem is seen as a provocative political move, and will and will bring out protesters, maybe fifty, maybe a hundred, maybe a couple hundred, we'll maybe even make the news here. Could even be turn a little bit violent. But it's not going to bring out the masses as something as an encroachment on on Harabite. Even and even what they even what one could say is a logical move of more security. Well, look, I, I I think I think we do have to get to why the Temple Mount in particular is such a flashpoint. I would argue that a family moving in to an Arab neighborhood in East Jerusalem is on the Jewish side also an attempt not just to build a house but to long-term change that status quo and and and, and make them make that neighborhood you know uh, ultimately more jewish yeah correct it is a politically provocative move that's what i'm saying that even something that is a politically provocative move will not bring out the masses today right. as such as something that is not necessarily a politically what we would de- what we would define as politically provocative right. meaning security measures after a, after guys open right. up I don't remember if those guns were automatic. I mean, it was it was automatic. it was automatic fire on the Temple Mount, and so now we have to put up. It's not meant to be political to put metal detectors on the gate outside to make sure that there's no violence, so that people can pray peacefully and quietly up on the Temple Mount. Um, and that is being portrayed. You're saying more with more Arab anger than even something that is politically trying to change the status quo. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, so that shows how I think a little bit in the, from the Arab minds, how they perceive, um, you know, Israeli sovereignty over anything. I have a theory about that. Have you ever been up on the Temple Mount? Uh, yes. Me too. So, uh, were you, uh, yelled at when you were up there? Uh, no. So I was, um, you had these. Groups of people. Well, I went with uh, Young Judea with like young, you know, American students. So it wasn't as obviously provocative, you could say, in their mind. As I was there with a bunch of middle-aged suburban Jews yeah, with kippot. Yeah, it was clearly with kippot. So, so we looked, we looked the part. And we didn't. We told all the kids not to, and even the kids this and that. And I did manage to say a little to him as we were walking around. Oh, I did not actually. I didn't. I didn't bother because I thought. I, for me, it was an interesting experience because uh, uh, a lot of the guys I was with were were intimidated by people yelling "Alu Allahu Akbar" at us as we walked around, like screaming it at us. So, first of all, I think they were intimidated because they grew up in suburbs in America and they were a little younger than me and they hadn't experienced anti-Semitism. So, for me, having been beat up as a kid in Brooklyn, I was like having somebody yell at me. I was like, oh, "What do we do?" And also, I it made me feel the sovereignty. In other words. Oh, you're yelling at me? Okay, go ahead and yell at me. You can't touch me. I, 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 my nation has sovereignty here. So you can yell at me all you want. It's democracy. You can yell at me. So I actually, for me, it was a feeling of national. They, they felt shaken, and I felt like self-assured from the experience. But I'm, but I'm a little bit weird. But what, what, one of the things I walked away from, uh, I couldn't see the women's faces because they were covered, but I did see the men's faces, and I, and 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 I and I, I I think they were really uh, angry at us. This was not like a, a a chant exercise, you know, like you know, what do we want? What do we want? No, it was real. I I have come to believe, and this is my theory. I can't prove it. That in the Palestinian world, there is a real 
sense that the Jews are getting ready to knock down the two shrines they have up there, the, the, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock in the middle, the gold-covered uh, dome that is you know so distinct in Israeli skylines. They get more worked up, however, on the south of the Temple Mount, which they call Haram al-Sharif. Uh, uh, they're always talking about the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That that mosque is very old. That's where, according to their tradition, Muhammad ascended to heaven. Why are you looking? You, that's not right. Well, I always thought it was then. The, that's the whole dome of the rock is where he ascends because the rock he 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 goes up from the rock. No, no, I don't know why, but it's Haram al Sharif. It's where the mosque is. Uh, it's it's no because the Quran says he goes to the farthest mosque, right. so it has to be where a mosque is. And there may be different traditions that maybe you you and I read something. No. Haram al-Sharif is the area, and they always talk about the mosque. What's the rock for? The rock. They hold... Why is the rock significant? I think the rock is significant because it was significant. In the same... When a new culture comes in, they take an old... The Kaaba stone also was a pagan center in Mecca, and it became uh, a Muslim shrine. Um, I mean, arguably, we did the same thing. Like, we treat... Wahabdil, but we treat... The Bible treats Beit El as an important place here in Israel that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob come to. It was, it seems to have been a pagan shrine um, that we then, and arguably Shalem, unless you see Melchizedek in the Bible as a monotheist, which doesn't seem to be really. He's the Kohen El Elyon, seems to be a, a, a Canaanite pagan. But we ta- what you do is you, you, you turn the shrine into your culture. So I think that's a normal... Culturally appropriate, as the words go today. I, I think that's what it is, and that's. I, I think all religions do that, but that's neither here nor there. But I think I from to look up the. Well, well we should have. Uh, it's interesting. We both had these different. Yeah. We'll see who. I'll put some links. That. Yeah. Uh, and you can get back to us if you if you for what we're getting wrong. But um, I think they can't understand why we haven't destroyed those buildings. I think they can't understand why. We haven't built Jewish buildings up there. You know, we took over Baca, we took over things, and this area, we took over all these Arab neighborhoods and built Jewish homes. And this area, which is so symbolically important, we haven't knocked down those buildings and built Jewish symbols up there. It must be that we're doing it, but we're doing it by stages. And by the way, uh, uh, first of all, we did, and we did mo- mo- knock down mosques in different parts of the country, right? And, you know, 48 and those things. and communities were gone but that but so is that sort of fits into your what you're just saying like why wouldn't we do it in the most important place for us but not even that we didn't even take part of the mount like temple mount we, we didn't take part of it and say okay you know what we're gonna be we're gonna be you know large and we'll let you have your mosques but we're gonna be able to make knesset there too right like the marsum like martimachah in in hebron where you know today um, you know, there's a there's a Muslim part in in Yitzchak's room. You know, it's supposed to be, and the Jews are in in Avram and Yaakov. Like, why don't we do that on the mount ever? Yeah, they don't get it, and 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 you I know, don't get it. well, I don't get it. <laughs> I think, well, I think from the look, there are Jews who they're under who who agree with them, and think yeah. we should knock it down. Right? Correct. What was your story about Rav Goran and uh, Moshe Dayan? Uh, as Uzi Narkis. Oh, Uzi Narkis. Yeah, in 1967, when um, Rav Goran, who later became the chief rabbi of Israel, but in 67 he was the chief rabbi of the army, um, he was uh, Rav Cook's, um, Rav Sviyahuda Cook's, no, brother in law. 
sort of Cook's son-in-law. Right. Right? Right. right, right. So I was going to say Rav, Rav Cook's son-in-law. He, right? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm not, no, I'm not good at that Yichus family stuff. Yeah. Okay. I'm like questioning myself a lot today now after this uh, Muslim thing. That's a good thing. It's always a yeah. good thing to keep yourself honest. Anyway, whatever it is, Rav Gorin um, uh, was the chief rabbi of the army. He gets up there, basically one of the first people up there on the Temple Mount. Um, Uzi Narkis comes up. Who Uzi Narkis was, the, was in charge of the battle and, con- and conquering Jerusalem, conquering the old city. And it, he, Rav Gorin sees him and says, okay, bring me the dynamite. We're going to blow up the mosques. And Uzi Narkis looks at him and says, Rabbi, if you keep talking like that, I'm going to have to arrest you and put you in jail. Um, and it was clear then that Moshe Dayan, within, again, as you said before, within days, uh, I don't remember how much, I mean, even hours, yeah. um, basically says to the walk, here are the keys, you're in charge of the religion, we're going to keep security control, obviously, you're going to control what happens up here religiously. Um, and he did that on his own as Minister of Defense without a cabinet decision, and then it wasn't overturned by the cabinet. So, you know, I, I don't know that he, the, the, you know, the silence of the cabinet obviously agrees with it, and that has become the status quo that we talk about. I, I don't know that it was something carefully considered. It was just something he intuitively felt at the moment. We can analyze, let's do that afterwards. Let's analyze what was that intuition or, or, or thought based on. But in the meantime, let's just... That was the established status quo. And, and the Israel... Oh, by the way, there's one more thing that happened. The first guys that got there, the first um, army paratroopers that got there, went up, put an Israeli flag on top of the mosque. Yep. Um, they were all excited. Moshe Dayan, who at that point, is on, the, is on Mount Scopus. He sees it. He calls to the... Or he says, take it down immediately. I don't know if there's a picture of that, but he, and maybe he takes he takes uh, he takes the melee. I saw one of the soldiers who so was very very angry. The soldier who put up there, like, what, what could this be? Um, anyway, this, and, and then they all proceed down to the Kotel. After standing on the Temple Mount, they all run down to the Kotel, and that's where they all start taking the famous pictures of here we are at the Kotel, which and crying even after even after Harbide Biadenu, let's go to the Kotel now. Right, they were. On the Temple Mount, and they're all excited to be at the Kotel, which, of course, is the external wall that Jews couldn't get past to get to the Temple Mount. These guys from the Temple Mount go to the external wall, and they're excited to be at the place where, you know, that, that symbol of, of, of exile, really. And, and, and that's what the Muslims can't understand. Well, the, I, I would argue. They can't understand that. They can't understand that. Well, why, why would you? You won. Look, I think there are Israelis and Jews to this day who can't understand it and say, why don't we? But I think the majority of Israelis think that as a, as, as a, as a democracy that believes in uh, Western civilization and the rules of, of international order and war, you know, people accuse Israel of not caring about international law and, uh, and all of that. Well, I think the consensus in Israel is that's their religious space and we're not going to destroy it the way our religious spaces were destroyed. It's in use. It's of value to them. We're not going to encroach on that space uh, and we're not going to damage it. And I don't know that within the Palestinian world that's that's a believable or even an understandable outlook. I think it's not understandable. I don't think it's understandable. They, 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 and that's why we see the question and say – well, then obviously it's not, it's, not, it's not so important to you. Or maybe your temple wasn't even there if you really went to it. Or, or maybe you're going to conquer it 
immediately, right? Everything you do to change it is to conquer it. In other words, they're, they're trying to figure it, us out because right. it doesn't make sense in the world. You're obviously scared to do it for some reason, either, whether it's external pressure or whether you don't want us to riot. So you're going to, instead of throwing the, the frog into the pot of boiling water, you're going to, by small degrees, raise the temperature until until the frog is killed. Isn't that the metaphor? That's a weird metaphor. Or, or chip away, maybe chip away at the... At the agreement, Paul Nagid. Yeah, because you for sure want to take it. So now anything we see as any, even the slightest change of status quo is for us, has to be treated as, as if you stormed the Temple Mount and are trying to set fire to our mosque. So we will, we will, we will fight any change as an encroachment. And to Israeli mind, we put up a metal detector. Here you have, okay, so Druzim, the Druzim officers who were killed. So uh, do the Druzim define themselves as Arabs or not? Okay, but from an Israeli perspective, these are non-Jewish Israelis killed non-Jewish Israelis. Arab-speaking Israelis killed Arab-speaking Israelis on the Temple Mount. And so we want to make it a safe space for Arab-speaking Israelis to do what they do. So we're putting a metal detector, which we go through to go to the mall. We go through to go shopping. To go to the Kotel. We go through to go to the Kotel. Muslims go through to go to Mecca, to the, to the Kabul. We say, I mean, it, it's something that's given all over the world. And it's part of the status quo. Because the status quo, from our perspective, is we have security control. We get to decide security control. Right? Of course, now it's being distorted in the news that we're not letting Muslims up there, which isn't true. Again, it was in the first 48 hours, but that was, again, security control. Well, anyone who says that a metal detector means you don't have access to the location on the other side, has never been to an airport. Metal detectors are to give you secure access to the other side. Right. So nobody's being shut out anymore. But, but they... The, well, not, not nobody. On Friday, they wouldn't let males under 50, Muslim males under 50 go in. No, no, right. Okay. Again, and also the 48 hours immediately after. I'm saying just in general, yeah, right. in general. you're right. There are moments where, where the things are getting out of hand. But again, it's this ratcheting up which from the Israeli side seems incomprehensible, but I think from, if you understand it from the Palestinian cultural side, actually makes sense. Yeah, and I think from both sides, this is when we get into these clashes, both sides really are looking at the world from different places. Yeah. For Israel, this is not changing status quo because we have sovereign, we have security control of that area. The, the, the deal was that we have security control. That's the deal we gave you, right? Uh, and we're not even specifically protecting Jews. Um, for the most part, we're protecting non-Jews. We're trying to help you, and you're blowing this up. Now, when I say you have to understand from a Palestinian perspective, I'm not defending rioting to preserve the status quo because of that false impression. I'm saying if we don't understand how they're thinking, we will fail to grasp the gravity situation. And for whatever reason, that belief that the Jews are coming to take away the Al-Aqsa Mosque is it goes back? I mean, the riots in the twenties, where the the Jewish community of Hebron, which was this, you know, millennia old community, was was massacred and destroyed, was because of rumors. Because the Jews put up a mechitza at the Kotel, for that for for Tishabav, so that led to rumors, partially falsely spread by the the Mufti then, as the current Mufti is also raising the heat. Um, you know, oh, status quo of changing the status quo. They're changing the status quo. That's an assault on everything you do. So that when we when we open up a, a tunnel for tours underneath, <laughs> that's an assault on the status quo. That's riots on the Temple Mount. When we rebuild a destroyed synagogue 
a hundred yards away in the middle of the old city at the Chorva Synagogue, that's a cause to throw things off, you know, onto the heads of people praying at the Western Wall. So the Jews have accepted this status quo of, well, we'll continue the exilic practice of praying outside the confines of the Temple Mount. We won't ask for our space out of respect. And anything we do is, is taken as an attempt to encroach on the space because they see that encroaching as inevitable. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a devil's problem, and so Israel currently is faced with a dilemma of, well, now hold on a second, do we do what to us makes perfect sense, or do we do what is seemingly safer and keeps nerves calmer by not changing anything, because that that will. Uh, prevent short-term riots and violence and the deaths of Arabs and Jews. That's a hell of a dilemma to be in the government to have to worry about. Uh, Avi Is, uh, how do you say his name? Avi Issacharaf, I think it is. Issacharaf, Issacharaf. So he was saying it's, it's, it's the decision between being right and being smart. But I'm not sure I agree with his assessment. I think it's, I, I think it's smart to put up metal detectors. But is it politically sensitive to the Palestinian perspective and and saying, okay, if this bothers you that much, we'll give into it because that'll save lives. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's smart. I really don't. Uh, so I, I don't, I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so, I'll, I guess I would say I'm uh, right now. I'm maybe again, as an Israeli, uh, there's a certain anger. Again, we, we, as much as we try and think with our heads, you know, we have emotion, and we have emotion involved in the game. And, the, and you know what? We're trying to put up metal detectors, which we have the right to do. It's our, it's our land. And because they're going to have violent protests, so, okay, we're going to change the game. Yeah, oh, well, because you have to take into consideration it's a bigger thing. What's, what's safer? Well, is, is it going to really be safer long term? Is this really going to prevent or any? Well, it's worse than that because will this spill over into a third intifada where we're going to be afraid to leave? Our- Look, last night I was I was locked in my house. There was a security alert. Somebody crossed over into where I live and my kids instead of driving home to Shabbat. So it was okay for me because my granddaughter was here an extra 45 minutes mm-hmm. waiting for the all clear. You know, the idea of the, Isra- is the Israeli body politic is still so traumatized from the second intifada. If this explodes into another uh, intifada, then then all life becomes infused with 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 daily terror. But do you give into that? Like, is that? I I, I think this is a problem from hell. And it's obviously the it's the modern world's problem to some degree because we're, we're wars and the ways we we wage wars have changed, um, <clears throat> and conflict again not too good. But I, I would say maybe I'm going to give a cynical. A bit of a cynical piece, but I think, and again, I'm not trying to encourage violence or the government to be, you know, powerful and and pushing things forward. But if it's that, if another intifada is going to explode the way it did in the past, I don't, I don't really think it will. But whatever it is, it, it's going to. In other words, if we shut it down now, then in two months something else will spark it. That or 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 in six months or a year. In other words. The, the fundamental issues are there, uh, and we need to face those fundamental issues. And one of those fundamental issues, I think, is what we're talking about now, which is we see 
it, things very differently here between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, and that is clear on the Temple Mount, and it's clear in Israel itself. And so we have to deal with that, those fundamental issues of how do we come to some kind of agreement when we're really seeing the world from different views. A modus vivendi, and when we can't agree in our perspective, but how do we operate together? I'm not disagreeing with your logic. I'm just saying if I was a minister and I knew that my decision, and a month from now, God forbid, a family gets killed in their car driving, and you know, or parents and kids are, are murdered, and I and I have to think, well, well gee, I wonder if I had if I had de-escalated and taken away the. I mean, I I, no, I don't know how I could live with that. People are already asking that about Fridays attack because of course i i mean maybe it was obvious we didn't say it, but the the terrorist himself actually didn't say this and it is very important the murderer from, from friday night uh put on his facebook page a last will so to speak um before um committing his uh murder and uh particularly blamed what was happening on the temple mount on it so it's a direct yeah, right. he's going to be, it directly incited him to do that. Um, but I think again, I think that if it wasn't that, then it would have been something else that would have incited him the next day or the following day. So I don't, and I and I think the you know I, I don't know. I, again, I have the the luxury of not being a minister. That that to me is the issue. As not being a minister, I can logically think it through. As being a minister. I uh, I don't know how I make that decision that it, that in short term endangers lives because long terms right. I don't know I, I don't mean, know how to that, that, look your son got called didn't your son get called up uh, to active duty even though he was on a break from the army yeah so uh, Thursday morning he's his unit got a long weekend I picked him up at the, I picked him up at the bus station at seven thirty in the morning. 20 minutes from our house because there's no public transportation to where we live. And I brought him home. 8 o'clock, I went to work. At 10.30, I get a call. Uh, got to go back. Got to be up north in three hours because the whole... The Army went on Konanut and they canceled all... What is Konanut? Oh, sorry. Thanks. Uh, the Army went on emergency standing. Um, they canceled all leaves. Alert. and Yeah, alert. Um, and so they had to go back up and they had to wait around. And it was a... 36 hours of back and forth, well, not even back and forth. We thought that that was it. And then after Friday, which it was a lot calm, even though we're talking, it's a lot, lot calmer um, than it than potentially could have been. So they actually sent him home and he got home just before Shabbat, which was really um, great because now he's in for three weeks straight and who knows what it's going to be. Um, but I will say this, and this is maybe our last uh, point that we should like a little discuss. We can end on this point, which is, how how we know not how do we know but what is the, one of the major predictors of it's going to get like it was in the past which is very scary anybody who was here in the second intifada or mike uh, he spoke about it before i think on a podcast he's lost his aunt was murdered in the second intifada um so one of the great indicators is the security cooperation between the Palestinian police and Israeli police. There's no doubt that since the second intifada ended, one of the major, major things that has kept things manageable, let's call it manageable, has been the in, intense security cooperation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. So in Mahmoud Abbas, I heard on the radio today, threatening, the, oh, we're stopping higher level security things. That was happening on the ground still is is that um, there is intent there is very lots of cooperation which is why almost all of what's happening 
is focused around Jerusalem because the Palestinian Authority does not have security forces in East Jerusalem because that's under Israeli sovereignty. So <coughs> that's why that happens. And then well, you see what happens in the Yishuv, the terrorist attack Friday night was what we call the lone wolf, something that is that is very hard to prevent by the Palestinian Authority or the Israeli authorities. And, and But you don't see massive demonstrations. You, you do see some rock throwing. Some things are happening in the West Bank, but not, not very much. And that is an indicator of where this may or may not go. My guess, if I had to try and guess, which I don't know, I mean, I guess I'll just do it, um, is that we'll see an increased level of these lone wolf things like we saw um, 2015. 2015, two years ago, um, for a number of months now. Uh, um, I mean, God forbid, but look, they, they have, the, I would argue. There's, been, there's a lot of motivation out there. They, the army just got good at shutting them down. So did the Palestinians. Look, Palestinian leadership, I think, you have the Hamas side, which is just championing this and cheering it on, which is partially why the Fatah leadership by, by Abbas they have to be very careful. If they turn on this, this they can be seen as collaborative with the Israeli government because they are working with the Israeli government because if Palestinian violence gets out of hand, there's no reason it won't turn on them. And so they have to, from their perspective, walk this tightrope between being supportive of a popular form of uprising, including culturally, somewhat supportive of violence. They cannot say where they can't in Arabic. It just seems yeah, it let, seems culturally inappropriate, let, but then they have to keep it toned down enough that they don't feel endangered. Uh, for this is remember when we talk about culturally be sensitive to violence or whatever you use those they that also means paying terrorists families yeah. uh and, you know supporting them after they're after supportive. They're, they have to be supportive. Yes. To a certain extent of violence, because culturally, though, they have not found the political ability to turn to their communities and say, you know what, this isn't heroic. This is this hurts us more than it helps us. And until Palestinian leadership, until there can arise a Palestinian leadership that turns around and says that to its people, say, you know what, you guys want to boycott on the Temple Mount because you don't like the idea of this? That's fine. You want to protest? You want to? That happens in a democracy. But we're trying to build a healthy future Palestinian state. We can't unleash violence anytime. There's no way we're going to have a state like that. So you guys have to turn to peaceful protest, and and some are, by the way. There is there is peaceful protest going on outside Tama, right? And the Palestinian leadership saying that's cool. Fatah should be saying anything else has to be shut down immediately. And Hamas, how dare you? How dare you endanger the lives of your fellow? Palestinian Arabs. This is beyond the pale of normal political speech. You cannot incite violence. You cannot praise murderers. And we condemn the murder of that family. Which Fatah, I mean, if you have represented Fatah praising the murder of that family. By the way, and I would say that this is, again, the fundamental mistake that the Palestinians make. If we're talking about fundamental mistakes that we make understanding Palestinians, fundamental mistake that the Palestinians make understanding us is if they had tens of thousands of people in peaceful, nonviolent, democratic protest, they would get much more. Oh, down in, the the metal tech is down in seconds. Israeli public would say, "Okay, that's fine. Okay, we get it. You're in. You're working with us. We're cool." And uh, inshallah, 
inshallah god willing that'll be that that's and that's what outsiders who want to make this better should be working towards that's if you care about the if you care about palestinians if you care about the rights of palestinians and their freedom of expression then their leadership should be pressed to do that you want to pressure israelis to change policies or attitudes or whatever that's that's fine but israel has to work within a relationship with palestinian leadership and there they ultimately although israel has more military and economic power they cannot make decisions for Palestinian leaders. They can only respond and work within the decisions they make. And that's ultimately what's going on here. It's irresponsible, I would say immoral decisions by Palestinian leadership that is going to hurt Palestinians in in the short term, medium term, long term, more than any Israeli actions or policies, like trying to keep people safe by putting up metal detectors. Uh, I, I, I think that's it. I think that's it. The only topic we didn't get to was what, what what was Moshe Dan thinking when he when he I think he I think he didn't like the idea of a religious victory on the Temple Mount and there's something to that and I think he was responding maybe with Western norms to a certain extent I don't know he's a weird guy he's a hard guy to unpack anyway we won't get to that this week but uh, we'll go back onto our regular podcasting schedule moving ahead. Uh, as we enter into this dark period in the Jewish calendar of the three weeks and enter into the month of Av, when we enter into the month of Av, you know, traditionally we we reduce our happiness. And, and unfortunately, the events of this past Shabbat make that uh, all too easy a custom to, uh, to observe. There's nothing, you know, it's so heartbreaking to see, you know, the family celebration of the Shabbat table. So it's hard. All right. So what do you say, Erev Rosh Chodesh Av? You don't say Chodesh Tov, do you? I do say Chodesh Tov. We should have a better month and things should take a turn for the better. And, and leadership really on both sides and, and be followers, not only leaders, followers, should act in ways that are productive and constructive and lead to a better future. If we say leaders lead, followers make their leaders. Yeah. And everybody has to be accountable for that, wherever they are. All right. Uh, thank you all. If anyone uh, feels uh, that they can, we would really appreciate it. If, even if you don't use iTunes as your mode, if you could turn to iTunes and give us some stars, as many as you feel are appropriate, that would be great for the podcast. Um, and we will return to our regularly scheduled episodes uh, as we move on. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teacher's Lounge podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at juisraelgap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And... If you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys. <laughs>